welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people, the whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit! We are now addressed by the living Lord through his living word. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment to pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us here in these spaces this morning. Give us your Holy Spirit to understand this, the very word of God, and bring us into the presence of the living Lord as you come to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus, thank you that you have lived with us, died for us, have risen again to bring us into newness of life by way of forgiveness and renovation. Lord, no matter who we are, no matter from where we have come, would we know the gracious welcome of Jesus even here, even now, we pray and plead with you for Jesus' sake and in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Years ago, I was at a question night at my friend Sean Zook's house here in Collingswood. Some of you may know Sean. He's preached here a couple of times over the years. He's one of the pastors at First Methodist Church here in Collingswood, and he would put together periodically question nights, where in his living room there would be a combination of people of faith, Christians with people that were not of faith, and we just talk about various subjects. And up for this night at the Zook household was the topic of faith and science. And we dove in. And one of the people in the room was a neighbor of mine. He was a biologist and an atheist, and he put forward an argument as to why he was not somebody that believed in God, was not a person of faith. He wasn't argumentative about it. He was very humble, but this was his reasoning. He said, I grew up in the Catholic Church. I said, that's a shocker for this area, but yeah, that's, that, that's what I did. I grew up in the Catholic Church, but as I went from high school to college to graduate school, I was really interested in science, and I became a scientist. I became a biologist. He's a professor at a local university, 
And he said, my read on faith and science here in the West, historically, is that there have been inflection points where it's been faith versus science, and every time, science wins. And so that shows me that faith is not true, but science is. And he gave examples like Galileo centuries ago, a scientist who said, hey, wait a second, I really don't think that it's the sun that revolves around the earth, it goes the other way around. Church said no, science said yes, science wins. Or age of the earth, when geologists started to study fossil remains and different layers and tectonic plates and all of that stuff. Scientists began to say, here in the West, the earth may be a lot older than the 6,000 or so years that Genesis seems to teach. Church said no, Science says yes, science wins. Or in the 19th century, Charles Darwin and other scientists putting forward evolution. Hey, we as human beings, we may have evolved from lower life forms. Church says no, science says yes, science wins. Therefore, science is true and faith is not. What's your take on such things? I would say, for my own part, living here on one of the coasts, it's just kind of in the drinking water that that culturally just feels true. And I have been at so many parties, so many gatherings over the years when other people may not have known that I was a pastor, and whether it's offhand comments or jokes, the assumption in the room is faith is dumb. And maybe for some of us, that keeps us away from being a committed follower of Jesus. I, faith just doesn't seem as smart as science, therefore, I'm not a person of faith. Or maybe it causes us, if you are a follower of Jesus, to maybe waver in your faith a little bit and say, I'm not so sure. Or when you leave church on a Sunday and go to more sciencey, secular places during the week, you kind of play that faith card close to the chest. And realistically, this is one of the reasons why, and I've talked about this a good bit in recent weeks and months, why adults here in America in their 30s and 40s that have been Christians are deconverting or deconstructing their faith because they feel as well that science, it's simply true, disproves faith. So that's one layer. And then another layer, over the past few years, there's a slogan that's come on the scene, science is real, right? Have you seen that slogan? It's part of the secular creed all over Collingswood and surrounding boroughs. There's a sign in people's yard that says, we believe. And then it's a rainbow-colored set, colored set of slogans where you'll see things like, Women's rights are human rights, and black lives matter, and love is love, and then also science is real. The interesting thing about that to me is that until the past few years, science is real would not have been a controversial statement, right? It's like, yeah, that, that makes sense. Science is real. That's why science is not magic, and science is about slide rules and microscopes, not unicorns and rainbows. So, of course, science is real. But this is my read on why that's sort of become a talking point and a slogan. I see it and email postsundayblues at gmail.com if you have a different read on this, and I'd be happy to dialogue more. But it's a reaction from the progressive left viewing the actions of our former president in relation to the pandemic. And they saw that, the, that our former president was not taking the pandemic very seriously, would talk about how it would just magically go away, Things like the endorsement of hydroxychloroquine as an untested, unproven 
sort of remedy for coronavirus, and then there was the offhand comment, serious or not, people have different opinions about it, about injecting Lysol, and so on. The progressive left pushed back and said, hold on a second, science is real. And it's okay if your mileage varies, but I'm sympathetic to that sort of critique. However, at a larger level, science is real. At an additional level, science is real makes me a little bit nervous. And here's why I call to the witness stand, Michael Scott. So how many of you remember the Fun Run episode from the series The Office? One of the classic episodes up there with Dinner Party and a few others. So Fun Run episode in classic office fashion. Everything goes wrong during the Fun Run episode, and it's debacle after debacle after debacle. But then finally, a little bit of money is raised, and Michael Scott orders this big, giant cardboard show check $340 is the money that they raised, and do you remember what it's made out to? You can say it. Science. And that's a joke. It's a giant $340 check made out to science. And the reason that that's funny is because science is not this unified, monolithic thing. You can't just make a check out to science. But I wonder about that and remember that and think about that when I see the slogan, science is real. I wonder, who's science? What science? Science is not this monolithic thing. And when you get into science, there's argument, there's hypothesis, there's scientific method where you go back and forth. And so for me, when I hear something like, what does science say? That's a little bit like asking, what does politics say, right? Or what do the politicians say? Well, it depends on what political party and what politician you ask. It's more complicated than, than that. And I suspect as well that the slogan, science is real, can serve as, at a larger level again, another layer, an agenda from the political left to introduce things that may be supra-scientific and not based on settled science at all. So let's unpack these things. Either way, Faith and science is a thing. Let's dig in. So we're going to talk about two parts from here. First, we're going to talk about days of creation, stemming off from the sermon series in Genesis. Then we're going to talk about things like faith in the Bible and science is real. Six-day creation. Now, I'm not going to leave you in suspense. I'm not a six-day creationist. The six-day creation view is that God, we take Genesis literally, created all things, the heavens and the earth, in six literal 24-hour days. Let me explain. Some orientation as it reveals to doctrine of Scripture. I told you there was going to be no application in this sermon. You didn't believe me, but here we go. So, doctrine of Scripture. I believe that the Bible is infallible in everything that it teaches as it's properly interpreted. And so, if I believed that Genesis 1 and 2, that the scriptures demanded that I take a six-day view of creation, then I would feel bound by scripture to say, that's where I need to be. That's where I need to go. Scripture demands it. And admittedly, on this question, it would be a little bit difficult for me. It would take some work for me to get there, but I would understand that's the goal. That's where I need to get because I'm bounded by scripture. And so for you, whether in the room or watching online, if you are somebody that holds to a 24-hour, six-day view of creation, you are welcome here. 
I have no bones to pick with you. I'm only talking about these things because we're literally in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. So it would be weird for me not to say, hey, here's my take on some of these things. And this is a little bit of self-reflection from a guy that's not naturally self-reflective. But I perceive that Jim Anger, that's me, can be a little bit frustrating and confusing to people over the years. Here's my take as to why. There are two poles. On one hand, there are Christians that have the same view of Scripture that I do. It's infallible without error in what it claims and teaches. But then also these Christians over here would go on to say, and therefore Scripture is absolutely clear and it's easy to interpret everything. I'm there for the first part. I have some questions about the second part because the Bible's a big book. And look, some things are more clear than others. If you want some theological terms, I believe in the perspicuity of Scripture, by which I mean Scripture is perspicacious. <laughs> but that's a theological term, classically speaking, that says Scripture fundamentally is clear in what it claims. But then you also have the analogia scripturi, the analogy of Scripture that holds there are some passages of the Bible that are hard and difficult to interpret, Therefore, you need to interpret them in light of passages that are more clear. And so I take those things and say, there are some things in Scripture where I say, I plant my flag. I die on this hill. But it's a graded spectrum. There are some other things that I, yeah, I'm really 90, 95% sure about. This, this really is persuasive to me. I'm going to live this way and teach this way. But then there are some other things where it's like, I'm, I'm actually pretty open-handed about this. I could see different interpretations. But then when people on that poll hear me say, well, I could see different interpretations here, sometimes they'll come back to me and say, Jim, why don't you believe the Bible? Or Jim, have you ever read the Bible? And I'm like, yeah, I dabble. <laughs> but not everything is equally clear. And I can be frustrating and confusing to those people. But then on the other side, I found myself to be frustrating and confusing to people where whether within the church or outside of the church, there is not a view that Scripture is infallible, and as part of that, too, it's not clear in what it teaches. It contradicts itself, and it's all over the place. I found myself frustrating in that direction because I'll hear back from those friends, Jim, I'm a little frustrated and confused right now because you're willing to have conversations about some things that sometimes Christians don't want to talk about. They're a little bit hot-button issues, and we're conversant, and I feel like you're hearing where I'm coming from, and I also feel like you're acknowledging tension points in your own system, but I'm frustrated and confused as to why you're not agreeing with me. What's up with that? And that's when I'll come back and say that as we land interpretive planes with Scripture, if I feel that the interpretive plane has landed here, that's where I need to be. And I think it's normative for Christians to say that Scripture should bind our conscience in different ways. That is good. That is normal. And so what do we do with days of creation? I will say that looking at different periods of the history of interpretation in the church, there has not necessarily been a uniform opinion about days of creation. There has been variety of opinion even from the early stages of the church. For example, early church, there was pressure on the early church about days of creation from the opposite direction of what we're facing today. And so today, six days to create all of this seems way too short. There's got to be longer process. Some sects back then said, six days, that seems way too long. And there were proto-scientists and others that would say, we hold to an instantaneous creation. All of this was created in one single moment. 
And then they'd come back to the church and say, what's wrong with your God? Your God had to take some breaks, rest on the seventh day, had to dice up creation into six days. Does God, when he's creating things, run out of gas occasionally? Does he need an arms day and a legs day and a core day and a cardio day to be able to pace himself as he creates? And so at that point, there were theologians in the early church that viewed the six days of creation as poetic analogies that described not woodenly literal those six days, but something else instead. And variety of interpretation continued through the Reformation and post-Reformation period. Certainly at every stage, there were six-day, 24-hour creationists, but that was not the only opinion that was floated within the church. And also early stages of geology here in the West in the modern period. Before days of creation became this incredibly fraught thing, okay, then there were a lot of scientists that were Christian that said, hey, we're finding that the earth may be older, and then theologians said, okay, let's talk about how this comports and how we can fit it together with the scriptures. In my opinion, and it's not just my opinion, that it's only been recently in the 20th century in America where six days of creation has become this contested thing. And in my opinion, again, as you look at the history of the church, it has not been consistently a test of Christian orthodoxy, but has only recently been problematized. And I'll remind you what I said last week, too, where the Bible, especially Genesis 1 and 2, is really old. It's a pre-scientific book. And so we simply can't expect this pre-scientific, thousands-of-year-old book to answer questions of modern science. If instead, we would have gone to this thousands-year-old book and say, oh, I see, I understand what it's talking about when it's going into dark matter and quantum mechanics and string theory. This answers all of my scientific questions. That book would have been alien and not of its time at all. Infallible in what it teaches, inspired by God, but then also God incarnated his word into different periods. And the book of Genesis, chapters 1 and 2, is written from the perspective of ancient people standing on the ground, looking up into the heavens, and looking around them on the earth. So, days of creation. Here's my take. There are two views within Bible-believing churches right now. The six-day creationists will say, okay, we have this round earth. Yes, it goes around the sun. We've settled that. But life, the universe, and everything, all things— have been created literally in these six 24-hour days. And then you have others, and this is where I fall, that treat these scriptures as every bit inspired and true in what it claims, but these are analogies for larger processes that leave some interpretive questions unanswered. And so they'll say, we'll say, yes, the earth is round, goes around the sun, but there is more room for process and longer periods of time. Which of those two views interprets Genesis literally? And I realize that I'm doing the Nixon thing right now, so sorry about that. Which of those two views interprets Genesis literally? And my answer is neither one. Neither one. So at the beginning of the worship folder, reflection quotes, go ahead and turn there, and it's dropped into the chat, I hope. If it hasn't already, please go ahead and let's drop it in the chat for people online. You have a picture and a diagram there. And this is mainstream biblical opinion 
Based on commentators, it says, if you want to draw a picture of the cosmology, the world described in Genesis 1, it looks like this. And also, interestingly, that worldview, that cosmology, is shared by other ancient Near Eastern people groups as well. And so what you have, if you want to take a really literal view of what's being described in Genesis chapter 1, is you have things like a firmament, a dome in the sky, and you have waters above and waters below. And it's a physical firmament or dome that keeps the waters out from flooding the earth. If you go and look at the account of Noah and the flood later on, the windows of heaven open and then the waters that are above the vault come on in. So you have the firmament, you have the windows, you have the pillars where literally the earth is being supported by these physical pillars under which is more chaotic water. And so my take, and I've dialogued with this with six-day creationists, and they, they have other views, and there are other arguments that can go back and forth. I get that. But for my part, if you want to take the day literally in Genesis chapter 1, it's only consistent to take all of the other things consistently as well. And I think a truly literal interpretation of Genesis commits you to things like a flat earth, apologies to Kyrie Irving, and a geocentric view of the universe. And so, in my view, again, if even most 24-hour, six-day creationists I know are willing to allow some figurative interpretation, I'll say, let's listen to science. And so it's possible, in my view, that there could have been a Big Bang. It's possible that the Earth is very old. It's possible that we have come to be human beings through some sort of evolutionary process. And this is where I draw the line for me. Even with those sorts of things, I believe that Scripture requires me and my two cents requires us to believe that Adam and Eve are historical people. There's been a lot of debate about that too. You see, as I read Genesis, there's no difference between the way that God interacts with and engages Adam and Eve versus Abraham and Sarah versus Isaac and Rebekah, Moses and Miriam, and so on. It's all treated as history of a piece. And so I think it's required from Genesis and then also required from the Apostle Paul, who in a chapter like Romans 5, his letter to the Romans, builds this historical analogy between historical Adam and historical Jesus. And so for those reasons, I think that's why, and others, that's why I land where I land. And now, faith in science, and science is real. For the next couple of minutes, I'm going to be relying on a book by an author named Rebecca McLaughlin. She lives in the Boston area, we're going to use some of her materials in Liberty Youth this year. She wrote a book a couple years ago, Confronting Christianity, 12 Hard Questions Brought Against the Church in Today's Day and Age. I would recommend that book. It's really good. One of her chapters is about faith and science. And she observes, and admittedly, I'm not a huge history of science guy. So I'm grateful for a chapter like this. Western science, thank you, church. Thank you, Christians. They were developed by Christians and by the church. And yes, of course, there was science in the Islamic part of the world. There was science in the Far East, like in places like China. Those were conversation partners with Western science. But Western science primarily was developed by people in the church and by Christians. So in the Middle Ages, William of Ockham, a philosopher and a proto-scientist. In the 16th century, one of the progenitors of modern science, Francis Bacon, and that whole thing about faith versus science, science wins, 
that my friend did at that question night, that's an oversimplification. If you go back and read about the time of Galileo, hey, the earth goes around the sun and not vice versa, Galileo himself was a Christian and said, this doesn't freak me out. And then there were other Christians at the time that, that asked the Pope to say, hey, can we slow down about this? Let's see if this can fit together. Ditto the early geologists, Lord Kelvin and so on. They were Christians and were working with biblical interpreters to see if these things can actually comport. Gregor Mendel, early geneticist, same thing. And at a conceptual level to me, if our God, as the scriptures say, created the world and all things, there is nothing principially or inherently that we have to fear from science, right? Because this is our father's world. McLaughlin, in her book, mentions a Chinese graduate student who came to the States, converted as a student. Her name was Jing Kong and said that I don't see faith versus science as a thing. My research is only a platform for me to do God's work. His creation, the way he made the world, is very interesting. It's amazing, really. So faith versus science doesn't necessarily need to be antagonistic. And then what do we do if science is real? Science is real. We don't need anything more or above science. Science gives us what we need. I would say that the more nuanced atheists themselves, secular people, don't necessarily believe that. So, what do you want to say is the logical conclusion of Darwinism on its own, survival of the fittest? Historically, that's things like racism and eugenics. Survival of the fittest. There were scientists in the 20th century early on that said, Darwin is great. Survival of the fittest is great. Let's whip up some science and let's prove that Aryans, that white people are superior to all other ethnicities. And let's have a party with experimentation and extermination so that we can buttress our view that survival of the fittest is the way that we need to go. And it's interesting to me, too, that even for a lot of secular people that aren't people of faith, they will admit the inconsistency between being Darwinist when it comes to science, but human rights, no, we don't listen to science at all. Science is not real there. Richard Dawkins is a celebrity atheist, probably better ways to put that, I don't mean to, to, to belittle him specifically, but he's talked a lot and has a platform talking about why atheism is better than theism. He says that he's a passionate Darwinian when it comes to science, but then he also says, I am a passionate anti-Darwinian when it comes to politics and how we should conduct human affairs. And I appreciate that he's admitting the inconsistency there, but it's still there. G.K. Chesterton was a Roman Catholic Englishman a century ago that put his finger on this pulse. And I've used this quote before. It's from the book Orthodoxy by Chesterton. I would encourage you, it's a public domain book. Go and read the larger paragraph. It is brilliant. I like Chesterton. He's smart and he writes good. A lot of the time, those two things don't go together, but he puts it this way, about the contradictions of modernity. The secular man first goes to a political meeting where he complains that savages, foreigners, are treated as if they were beasts. Then he takes his hat and umbrella and goes on to a scientific meeting where he proves that they are practically beasts. You see? Therefore, the modern man in revolt has become practically useless for all purposes of revolt. So to me... Science, good servant, bad master. Science is a good servant, but a bad master. And with the science is real as a slogan, in my opinion, do you want to know who the most consistent 
science as real people are in the history of the world? The Nazis. They really believed that science is real, and maybe secondarily, Axis powers, the Japanese also conducted horrible experiments upon human beings. All of these tests and the exterminations, not only of Jewish people, but otherwise. They were being consistent. So sometimes when I jog through Collingswood and I'll see the science is real slogan on the secular creed, I'll, I'll say it to myself in a German accent, like, science is real! And I, I probably shouldn't do this, but I think sometimes about going door to door and say, hey, do you want to meet the rest of your family? Here's Uncle Himmler. And, and let, let's have a conversation about where consistently some of these things go. And don't get me wrong. Is America clean when it comes to these things? No. Is the church clean when it comes to these things? No. If you take something, for example, like the Tuskegee experiments, if you know about that from the mid-20th century, I am sure that some of the white hands that injected syphilis into black bodies on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday were connected to white feet that walked into white churches on Sunday. And the church needs to reckon with that as well. But in my opinion, those Christians that conducted the Tuskegee experiments, they didn't need to become less Christian. They needed to become more Christian. And let's be under no illusion that science is not neutral. Science is not neutral. Who's science? Science for what? Stephen Hawking, pretty famous scientist, wrote a, wrote a few books. He died not too long ago. He's an early proponent of the Big Bang Theory. He's not a person of faith, but this is what he said about other scientists who were not people of faith and their resistance to signing on to the Big Bang Theory. He observed... Many people do not like the idea that time has a beginning, probably because it smacks of divine intervention. There was therefore a number of attempts to avoid the conclusion that there had been a big bang. So Hawking is saying that there were all these scientists that otherwise would have signed on to a big bang, but they're so antagonistic to the idea that there could be a God that started all things, that those non-scientific biases creeped in. And that's what I was talking about earlier, when it comes to larger agendas beyond just science is real. Do you know what's real? Money. Money is real. And especially as science studies things that are closer to culture warsy types of issues, this is what happens. You have a university, you have a nonprofit, you have a think tank that views this, whatever issue it is, and says, we need some science behind this. And so funding is gathered, science is done that supports those conclusions on either side. And sometimes when I see headlines on my newsfeed or whatever, scientists claim, and when I read whatever it is, if it turns out to be a progressive-leaning claim, and I go and read the article about who funded this? Oh, it's this university, or it's that think tank. Or on the other hand, if it's, if it's a conservative thing. Science is not neutral. Look at a recent historical example, and we'll talk about abortion later on this fall as well. When, when abortion first came on the scene, was not mainstream. People both on the right and on the left thought that abortion was a bad idea. And so there was a lot of science and study done from both sides of the aisle that said, hey, abortion is not healthy for women to undergo. But then over time, as especially on the political left, uh, pro-choice became more of a thing, what do you know? Science followed and said, actually, it's, it's quite healthy for women to get abortions, and the only unhealthy thing that we need to be, that they're challenged by is all these anti-abortion people out there. 
or a contemporary example. If there is a study done that says, is it healthy for a child to grow up in a traditional family situation or not? Let's be under no illusions that if it's a more left-leaning progressive sort of idea that in a lot of ways is not for the traditional family one way or another, those conclusions are gonna go in that direction or on the other side as well. And another thing that we're gonna do this fall as people are deconstructing a lot of things, I would love it if you could give me permission to deconstruct secularity a little bit. Where in the cultural drinking water here on the East Coast, there are so many things that naturally just sound like they go together easily, but do they really? I'm gonna preach a sermon later on about transgenderism this fall, and I, I wanna treat those questions with respect and with honor, not dismissively, not flippantly. But I'll just say this right now. One of the transgenderism slogans is gender occurs not between the legs, but between the ears. Gender is between the ears, what you think and how you feel about yourself, not between the legs. Is it really that obvious that gender is between the ears and not the legs, and science is real, would naturally go together, would naturally cohere? And there are scientists that work hard to get there, to get those things go together, but is it necessarily true? MCU, Disney Plus What If, is an animated Marvel series right now that spins other pathways forward of how the MCU could have taken shape. The role of the church at this time in the life of our culture is similarly to say, what if? What if things that seem so natural, so naturally coherent, so naturally consistent, might not actually be that way? And here's what, where I'll wrap up for this morning. We actually need Jesus for science, in my opinion, for these two reasons. We need Jesus for science, that there might be moral guardrails and also a rescue from dogmatism. Moral guardrails. Now, I admit that there are some aspects of Orthodox Christianity that are controversial right now. That's the case in different ways, east, west, north, south, throughout the history of the church. There are always going to be rough edges and things that don't fit a current culture as it relates to the scriptures. That doesn't freak me out. But then at a deeper level, there is a broad foundation that the church bequeaths to the world, including the world of science, that says, to this day, build here. Humans created in the image of God. Human dignity and personhood is real, not to be treated lightly, not to be denigrated. We use science for the good of all to build up. The earth is not something we trash, but we care for. Adam and Eve are put on the earth to be stewards of all things, including the created order, including the earth. Let the church serve that role to guard and to guide and also to rescue from dogmatism. You see, if science is a good servant but a bad master, God is the master, and we are servants. Scientists, if you're in scientific fields, I'm, I'm jealous of you and intimidated by you because you do all those like science things with like spreadsheets and microscopes. I, I don't understand what that is, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm thankful for it. We are only servants as scientists, whether Christian or not. And so any scientific conclusion should be tentative, because there's always more to study. There's always more data to come in. A friend of mine from high school that I grew up with became a doctor 
was actually one of the doctors during Hurricane Katrina that was in Charity Hospital trying to keep patients alive when there was no water and no electricity. I've dialogued with him over the years, and he says, and I think this is true, there are no scientific laws. I mean, sure, you can use that as shorthand, but so many scientific laws have been changed and modified over the years because we're still learning, we're still talking, we're still dialoguing. I told him, hey, buddy, that's a very Christian thing to say. And you might think, well, how on earth can moral guardrails and rescue from dogmatism go together? Well, I would say they can't unless there's a crucified and resurrected Savior. They can't unless there's a cross. Where Jesus died and rose again, paid the penalty for our sin, and in his death and rising conquered sin and death and the devil in order to share with all men and women, boys and girls, that come to him by faith the forgiveness of Almighty God because Jesus has settled that, death, uh, settled that debt on the cross through his death and shares a new life all the way to a new heavens and new earth with his children, with the church, as we are bounded, talked about it a couple weeks ago, by grace on one hand and glory on the other. That makes us humble in dialogue. And in such a context, science is real or otherwise, when everything is so charged and everybody attacks everybody else all the time, Jesus enables you to be the humble people that say, hey, I'm not trying to trash anyone. I'm not trying to cause this huge fight. Can we have more conversations? Can we speak humbly to one another today as we have hope for tomorrow? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, the odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed, where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later.